Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hello and welcome to History Hack. Matt here again, and we have got a very exciting episode for you tonight. Because not only am I on my own, which is what's been happening recently, I've got Meryn Walters with me. Good evening, Meryn. How are you? Hello, Matt. Hello, hello, hello. How are you? I'm very well. I'm really looking forward to this because we've got somebody special with us today, haven't we? Oh, shucks. (laughs) (laughs) We have got someone a little bit special. We have the inimitable, highly talented man of many coats and colours. He's an award-winning actor, writer, producer, poet. He is a man with a melaginous manner, honey-like dulcet tones. <laughs> it's Chad Mina. Hello. Hello. How are you? I'm calling from what's normally called the butt end or the receptacle of North America, Florida. Everything ends up. Flows down geographically and culturally. So, Chad, what time is it where you are? What time is it? It is quarter past three. Halfway through your working day? What are you up to these days? Well, it's funny you should ask. I've got paint spots all over my all over my body because I'm I'm uh, I'm the interior of my house. And I'm also renovating and doing a bit of carpentry where we're, uh, this is a post, this is a great example of a, a muscular post-war American house. You know, we just won World War II. The dollar is at its strongest, better than gold, and let's build big. Um, and, it's, and it's a fortune to keep cool in the summer. So we've had to, I'm insulating as well as renovating. Um, but it's very kind of laid out. And, and rather, uh, I find it a little boring myself. So we're trying to soup it up a little bit. Sounds, sounds good. And uh, are you talking to yourself while you're doing this? Or are you listening to any podcast? You're listening to History Hack, obviously. Yeah, yeah. I just listened to a couple of them uh, recently that were, what's the word? Magnetic. Magnetic. Magnetic is a good word. We yeah, like it's, it's great company to, to, when you work. And, of course, we have ways and... and um, and uh, one that uh, is headed by a friend of mine called Books and Books, who runs probably the best local bookstore in North America, according to my case. Book alert, book alert. Well, today's episode is all about language and words and words and linguistics, isn't yeah. it? So, yeah, I'm, I'm going to have to try to use some big ones to fit in, <laughs> fit in with this crowd. <laughs> Instead of my <laughs> usual monosyllabic questions that get, get me through these podcast recordings <laughs> not at all not at all yeah so I'm, I'm really looking forward to this because you know one of the things that sort of blew my mind a bit when I moved from Canada to England was you can go across London and the accents and the the terminology and the voices will be completely different yes whereas back home North America it's a lot less the case of that, isn't it? The the, the reg- yes. regional dialects are much broader. How? You see, there we go. Monosyllabic questions for you. How? 
<laughs> well, monosyllabic is, is the order of the day, you know, because that's the way we speak here. Yeah. Uh, I guess that's two syllables. Uh, that's a big one. Um, no, it's, it's the first time that English, proper English, what we call English from the 17th century on, which is very close to what we call, uh, I think it's a misnomer, but we have to accept it, uh, modern English, right? As opposed to Middle English, etc. But it's the first time that English is being used and being applied on what is essentially a tabula rasa, a clean slate, uh, an Edenic opportunity to develop a, uh, not only a, 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 a society along the Puritan lines with, with, the, uh, with the example of the English. Uh, of course, if you're Spanish, you want to create a, a Roman apostolic empire where everyone is bowing to the same God and, and Rome is, is dictating what should happen, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. If you're French, you've got some Huguenots coming in. And certainly in Florida, we had, the, well, after the, actually predating the South, was the first uh, French settlement in North America, uh, 1560, 1559, uh, Charles that was uh, very close to today's uh, Pensacola. Very close indeed, um, about maybe 50 miles, so I should say, what would that be in kilometers? Give a better idea, 70 kilometers or so, 80 kilometers uh, east of, of Pensacola today right in the middle of the panhandle, if you would. And that was completely decimated by the first, by the lasting contiguous European settlement, which is St. Augustine. And it was, it was founded by Pedro Menendez de Avilés, uh, who's from Asturias, or Asturias to anglicize it. And it is the site of the first Thanksgiving in North America. It was not the Jamestown settlement that we celebrate today. Um, it predates that about, uh, what is it? Somebody do the math. Uh, from 1565 to 1603, 45, 48 years. Right? And North America, by all intents and purposes, would have been Spanish-speaking. Indeed, most of the continent was, along with the French up in Canada. But it was, it was more aggressively uh, uh, settled and discovered and sooner exploited by the Spanish. Anyway, that Spanish colony decimated the French Huguenots. They were a Huguenot a community in 1559. Completely killed them, uh, decimated. Just, they, they kept the women and children and sent them on a ship back to Lorient and killed all the boys and, and the men. Just a massacre. About 700 were killed. I say all that because the first American words, and by that, let me be clear. When I say America, I mean the geographical entity, which is North America in this case, which, of course, consists of, of Mexico, or Mexico, uh, Canada, and, and the United States, and parts of the Caribbean, of course. The first words to come to the English lexicon were filtered through the French and the Spanish, who predate the English, as I, as I said, by 80 years or so. Uh, what were the first words? Guayacum. Guayacum, which is a Caribbean tree that the resin was purported to alleviate the effects of a French disease, let's call it, syphilis. Um, and it was filtered through the Spanish. So uh, I don't know what the Taino sounded like, because they were an oral 
tradition anymore. They have no written language. But, uh, and they had their own epics and their own poets singing on, on their own version of leaders, uh, a, a vastly organized society. And they had a, an island empire. Anyway, Guayacum was very important because it stemmed, according to them, it stemmed venereal disease. And that became a very popular uh, importation to, <laughs> commodity to Europe at that time. Canoe, from, again, from the Taino. It's, it, I thought it was Canadian. I thought it was French. It is not. It is also Taino, which incorporates Hispaniola, Cuba, and Jamaica at that time. Most interestingly is Hurricane, which actually makes its debut, people think, in English in Shakespeare's King Lear. When, um, when Lear uh, yells out in the storm scene, when he's on the cliffs of Dover and he's, he's combating the elements and he says, cataracts and hurricanos spout till you have drenched our steeples, right? Uh, hurricanos, that was never actually said on stage. Uh, and it's on a lot of cake, isn't it? Hurricanos, right? Um, which speaks to the oral tradition of the Tainos. Uh, chocolate by the 1540s. And perhaps Marin can talk about chocolate. Something tells me that she, uh, I can tell by those lovely rosy cheeks that perhaps you have a chocolate eater amongst us. I certainly am. Uh, potato, which comes from South, from the continent of South America, which is Incan. And um, one of my favorite. Uh, pastimes, tobacco, which is Arawak. It comes specifically from, from Cuba, from the uh, western, uh, today the western province of Cuba, which is in fact the best place, according to tobacconists, to grow that particular leaf. Tomato or tomato, let's call the whole thing off, is Naucal, which is Mesoamerican uh, from uh, southern uh, Mexico and Guatemala, etc. Um, and the French, toboggan, toboggan. That's a, that's a good Canadian word. You always beat us in toboggan. And totem, totem is from the, from uh, British Columbia, from the uh, Native Americans from, um, I forget the name of the tribe right now. Maybe you can help me, Matt. Who, who, um... I knew you were about to ask me that. It's gone straight out of my head. <laughs> America started to inform the English language in ways, I don't know. I don't know if there's a precedence for it. I don't know. Uh, maybe the Normans in, uh, informed what we call English today, one third of our language being Latin and out-and-out and out French, you know, in every sentence we have one or two of those words. Um, in Spain, of course, we have Arabic becoming one third of, of Castilian. Perhaps that's a good precedence, but nothing is so, well, adventuresome as so otherworldly, as unprecedented as North America. Of course, we say, or they said, it was a gentrification of North America because these Native Americans, um, these aboriginals, uh, were being blessed by our presences there, right? I mean, that's we know that that uh, means particularly dangerous to the aboriginals of this, of this continent, North and South, I should say. But... You know, the first English person to be born in, uh, in the Americas was a young lady called Virginia Dare, aptly named. That was her surname. The daughter of Anias and Eleanor Dare. It's as if, uh, or a theory, that a person's name is somehow a challenge for their life. I mean, certainly they dared to come over. You know, what did she sound like? Well, her parents were Londoners. 
you can simply revert to what London uh, Londoners sound like. But what part of London, Matt, as you suggest? You know? Was she one of the early settlers? Yes, she was born in Roanoke. No. So she would have come across in 1620? That's, no, no. Actually, she was born in 1587. Okay. Yeah, 1587. Again, after St. Augustine. But the reason why we, we, we quote St. Augustine as its first settlement is because, indeed, it is contiguous. Unfortunately, the Roanokers, if, I can, if you would, were, were, were killed, were massacred. And new evidence have shown that it was indeed, again, the, 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 the Spanish that, um, that did so, finding what they thought was their land. Now, it's suggested that some of them escaped. Why? Because as the Jamestown settlement, 25, 30 years later, started to make inroads into North America, they encountered aboriginals. I don't want to call them Indian because that's, that's a misnomer. But the, but the Native Americans, some of them were lightly skinned. Some of them had uh, uh, blue eyes, and, you know, which isn't so much a part of their genotype. Not necessarily. I mean, I suppose you have a recessive gene in there somewhere. But enough to arouse suspicion. And they knew some English words. So how do you explain that? It must have been perhaps a shipwrecked Englishman or indeed some of the people that got away. I mean, I... I would love to think the Virginia Bear got away the first, you know, Anglo-American. Um, but, you know, I'm, I'm, a, I'm someone noted as an Anglophile, but there you are. Um, so it, it's, it's very, it's, it's, it's a little bit like the interest is a little bit what we call, uh, I suppose, science fiction. It's, it's literally peopling a different world. Not unlike talking about settlement in Mars or writing about uh, as Heinlein does and and uh, other science fiction writers. Yeah, Heinlein, good good manager of language, Robert yes. Heinlein, and he yes. he didn't um, so much invent new languages as use lost language to invoke the sense of a dystopian new way of communicating. Exactly. In fact, uh, the, the the man. Um, Oh, what is that? A man, the man from another world, or, or the man who dropped in, or something? It's stranger a in a strange world. That's it. Thank you so much. Stranger in a strange land. Yes. And you know the way you pronounce Heinlein, Heinlein is the German way, right? Einstein or, or uh, even Eich, you know, right? the, the verb. But uh, in America, we say Heinlein because that's what I'd like to talk about next. There's there's a leveling about American English. And the reason why I brought up these, these settlers, these early Anglo, let's, let's call them Anglo-American, is because you cannot have a hard scrabble people, communities, you know, living on, on the edge of massacres from the Spanish, or indeed from the French, where there aren't many French massacres committed, uh, or by the Native Americans, and living on a low caloric intake, you know, trying to, to nourish themselves, trying to survive right on the littoral edge of this North American continent. You cannot have this. If there's a Cornish a person from York or a, pers- a person from Sussex or a person from Aberdeen or a person anywhere north of the Hadrian's Wall or indeed an Irishman, if they can't understand each other, if there isn't a negotiation of, of consonant clusters, and a leveling of vowels, right? If you can't 
do that, how are they going to communicate? How are they going to trade? How are they going to form a militia? How are they going to train the militia? How are they going to, to uh, regulate a militia, regulate trade? How are they going to marry? How are they going to negotiate the space between them if they can't speak to each other and understand each other in a, in, in a safe and efficient and efficacious way? So little by little, because people of necessity needed to speak to each other, understand each other, and, and hear, hear each other from afar, you needed to, to level the accents, the regionalisms. They couldn't afford regionalisms that, that you can in Britain today, like Matt suggests. Myself, as, as, he, as, as a, a, an inquisitive yank, an obnoxious yank who wants you know, going into these out-of-the-way places in England, you know, very, very difficult when somebody say, somebody comes up to me and says, we want a bouté. I mean, what does that mean? You know, I mean, I had to, like, literally look up and, uh, uh, yeah, buddy, did you say buddy? Uh, yeah. You want some onion in it, you know, you want some onion in it. How do you, how do you negotiate that without looking like, like, like a turd or pretentious or making somebody uh, repeat and, and, not, and suddenly becoming persona non grata, insulting them, because, you know, because you simply want to understand what they're saying. You don't have that. In North America, the regionalisms are, are faced, are, are wiped clean. And that's why somebody from Brunswick uh, up north can speak to New Brunswick. And that's why an Alabamian can speak to an Alabamian, not Albanian, an, Al- an Alabamian can speak to uh, somebody in British Columbia, uh, and a Mexican immigrant can speak to, to uh, an Albanian Im- immigrant uh, in Ottawa. What we're saying here really is the necessity of the hardships and the need to, I hate, don't want to use the word, but that, that colonial <laughs> spirit of, of taming the land helps bring language together in a way that it wouldn't in places with much deeper roots. That's right. I mean, these are outgrowths of feudal society and maintained their way of speaking. And they lived next to each other, some of these counties. But because these counties were islands of, I'm not saying they're feudal now, obviously, but because an outgrowth of this time, of this localism that dictated everything, despite trade, right, they've kept close to that. You can hear it, actually, a little bit in New York. You mentioned London. But I can tell when somebody's from Queens versus Brooklyn versus Staten Island versus Manhattan. You know, and there are economic reasons for that. You could talk about the American accent, and again, I mean Canada and the United States, um, by economically then. If everybody's supposed to sound like, well, why don't, why don't they? Why do you got somebody talking like this, you know, out in north central Alabama, like why you got somebody from eating tomatoes out in Georgia? Why do you have somebody out in Richmond not bothering to make a diphthong and just using an encoded schwa because it takes too much time and I can't be bothered. How do you explain that? Usually economic reasons, right? The, the landed class of the South had a top of a fun. It's so hot. I have another mint julep. You know, it's that idea of leisure, you know, as opposed to the people who worked on plantations, right? Who kept their abonics. And then you could still see that in some of the urban centers in the north after the great migration following the, the civil war so that ability to have 
the constancy of survival moves away, the luxury and- It moves into, and that's, that's wonderful, Matt, because it moves into industrialization, right? You see the same sort of thing happen, you know? You know, when you got the dock workers in New York, like, what are you looking at, snap ahead? You know, and all of a sudden the boss comes in and he goes, come on guys, now we gotta get our shit together. You, you, you do have class uh, in, in, in America. That's bollocks that you don't, of course you have class. You have class everywhere and people are judged accordingly. New York being the center of immigration, you've got a, a place called Five Points Area where you've got people from all over the world. In one block, you have 382 families, 812 persons who are Irish, 218 Germans, 186 Italians, 189 Poles, 12 French, 9 English, 7 Portuguese, 2 Welsh, 39 Negroes from the South, and American, whatever that means. So how do they get along? How do they, you know, how do they create this patois? Well, what they do is that they level off the accents. The sons and the daughters, obviously, they court each other and they get married and their children begin to talk in this leveling fashion. I actually have an anecdote in late 19th century New Yorkan. I don't know if we have time for that, but I'll be very happy to read it to you. Go for it. So this is, this is an example of New Yorkian. And, and by that, I mean working class New York, from Brooklyn, from Southern Manhattan, from the 1880s on. Actually, indeed, before even the Civil War to about uh, the turn of the 20th century. This is a son who is now an older man remembering his father who came from Poland. So he would say something akin to, and it's written uh, phonetically. The first thing we did from getting from the custom house was to find our way to an eating house. As soon as I sits down, a waiter comes up to my father looking like a moth or a butterfly or something. Then that's where the trouble began. The waiter understood just enough English to put us to sleep. So says my father, at have you any soup? We oui, we oui, says he. The soup and the potes. Then the old man gets up from his chair and says to him, "Well, you can shove that soup up your own potes." You know, uh, that's an example of negotiating. Uh, 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 indeed, maybe this is apocryphal, but the son could could cite. The fact that he could cite an anecdote like that, I think, is telling of people trying to negotiate a space to communicate. You know, how can you create synergy if you don't have a, a, a common language? That's a really great example, Chaz. What, what kind of period does that come from? What time period are we looking at? This, this particular accent could be anywhere from the 1840s. Well, I should say, this, no, specifically, this Polish person was probably... Uh, uh, probably came here after the revolutions of 1848. So that's when you had Germans and Polish people and Austrian people and, uh, and, and Hungarian people and the Italians come en masse because they wanted to live in a country that they fought for in 1848. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need a fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. 
That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Because if I remember my history correctly, it was 1790 mm. was the first census when there were, it was about 4 million Americans and 90% of them were descendants of English colonists. Scotch-Irish. That's right. And within that community, there was a significant Irish population, um, about 400,000. That's right. That, that made them the largest non-English community. But within the space of a generation and a half, two generations, you get to a point just pre-Civil War where you've got the likes of Ralph Waldo Emerson, Mark Twain, Walt Whitman, Noah Webster, who are starting to hear this cacophony of language, of dialect. And what um, Webster does in particular, he believes that speech always precedes grammar and that a standardised pronunciation is actually needed before a written language can be um, determined, which is why he made an argument for something called dissertations on the English language, which was a way of providing standard spellings to facilitate understanding so that no matter where you came from, if you understood the way things should be pronounced, that would help you to understand language faster and, and easier. Certainly, because those regionalisms specifically, that the consonant clusters, the breath in the vowels, the, the extended uh, uh, diphthongs or triphthongs or an open vowel differs from county to county. And I'm suggesting that that comes from the local ism of perhaps going back to the feudal age, you know, uh, where they were self-sufficient, right? You didn't need to speak to somebody uh, 150 miles away. I'm just going to jump in here, mate, because I've only got an English high school education here. And you've said some interesting words, which I know Marin can explain to me. When, when we're talking about accents, Chad is absolutely on the money. Accents can differ from, from town to town, it, and it's, it's a nuance that passes on from generation to generation. But two ac- any two accents, whether they are mm-hmm. English English or American English, will differ in four ways. There'll be systemic differences, which are the differences between um, specific sounds. There'll be distributional differences, which is the sounds used within each word. There'll be lexical differences, and that's where mm-hmm. some words have different pronunciations. And then there'll be phonetic. Essentially, it, it's, it's the same phonemes are realised in different ways. Now, a phoneme. A phoneme is the smallest unit of speech that distinguishes one word from another. So, for example, the word cab as a car that takes yes, people indeed. from one place to another, the phoneme B is what distinguishes the pattern of the word cab from the word can or cat or cad. So in other words, it's a letter, but it's not once you get a bit technical about it. And the difference between American English and English English or Genam and RP, received pronunciation, is that there are Mm -hmm. 44 phonemes, sounds, defined sounds in the English language. Um, and that includes consonants, short vowels, long vowels, diphthongs, and triphthongs. Yes, really. yes. But when we come down to, to the specifics, the consonants in our English and American English, so RP and Genam, 
are identical. There are 24 of those. But when we talk about vowels, the Americans go straight to the heart of it. Vowels, RP, received pronunciation, has 20. And Genam only has 16. So the, the actual construction of language within the mouth starts to change. I, I can run through the, some of the differences if you want to hear them. Yes, please. Okay. So, well, Matt, Matt's, Matt's the captain of the ship. <laughs> no, no, this, this, this is all great. I'm loving this. And considering my accent is midway between the both, I might use something going forward. Part of the challenge for understanding the difference between English and American goes right back to that early 1600s when you had a ship coming over from Plymouth. Most of the travellers came from the south of England, from East Anglia, but there were actually about 25, 30 different communities. So you had a complete melting pot already of dialects and um, accents and idioms and different ways of speaking. But when it comes down to it, when it comes down to the, the, the technical differences, systemic differences between American and English English, so RP and, and Gen Am. A couple of examples in received pronunciation, the O sounds locked, got, not. Yes. And, and when we write it down, when you open up a dictionary, you see all those funny squiggles. That O sound for RP looks like a backwards A. But for Genam, that same sound written down looks like a, an, an A with a colon after it. Yeah. And it sounds a bit more like a lot got not turns into la got not. That's right. Then you've got distributional differences. So RP is non-rotic, not non-erotic. English can be very sexy. But... If something is non-rotic, then the R is only pronounced before a vowel when it's written down. So you get red. You get medial R's being tapped. Absolutely. Red, rat, broke. So you get car, start, and the R before a consonant changes it. It's not an isolated sound. But Genam is American English is rotic. So wherever it sits, you get car, star, and, and it's far more, far more pronounced. Now, I studied IPA, International Phonetic Alphabet, during my graduate degree. That doesn't make me knowledgeable. That just means that I needed it as practical entry to play uh, all the character roles that I played. I mean, look at me. I'm not the leading man type. I maybe will make a living being everything from a Greek fisherman to uh, an Italian uh, gangster. But the reason why I mention this is because, it, at least in North America, there's also a political reason to sound different to RP. Mm. It, it, after the Civil War, yeah. there was a conscious effort. We were talking, so far, we've talked about leveling as a byproduct of what's going on, cultural and political realities. What I'm going to say now is that there was a conscious effort to level American speech, to create that Gen Am. The, the extension of that would be broadcast American which is kind of sort of what I speak, although it's tinged with a little bit of mid-Atlantic now, since, since I worked in classical texts, you know, and, and I should say that Matt has a lovely speaking voice. And I, You're too kind, sir. You're too kind. But, but I, and I say that because I have never seen or heard a better distinction between RP and Gen M as what Marin has just described. And it's the most... It's succinct, and I hope people are listening because that should 
and the or give people a, a different perspective as to the differences. One thing I'd like to say is that there is no, as opposed to Spanish, where you have Academia Real de Español or La Academia Francaise, or or in Portugal, in Portugal you have the same thing. You have in Italy. That is to say, a it is defined that when you speak Italian, you speak this way, namely the Roman dialect. We don't have that in English. We do not have an official way to speak English. We have standards, right? And, for, and we could hear that in the BBC up until, you know, pretty recently, right? The 70s and the 80s, when, when local, local, I hate to use accents, let's, let's say dialects, begin to show themselves and begin to be celebrated. In America, we have broadcast American. And if I wanted a job, I had to move away from my own English. I was born in East Harlem in New York City, son of, of political exiles or immigrants. I was raised half my life in Miami. So maybe I sounded a little bit like this. Oh, my God. You gave me the biggest coffee that I was up for like five hours. You know what I mean? Where the inflection is Spanish. Now, if I wanted to get a job in, in, in the theater, if I had to if I wanted to get jobs in, in radio spots, if I wanted to do anything on television, I had to acquire the, the English that I speak now. And that, comes, that happens from a, a conscious effort after the Civil War in Chicago, where there's the Chicago School. It's why we have the Chicago style of, of annotation, bibliographic tools, and even the grammar. But the Midwestern, the heartland speech of Ohio, Indiana, uh, northern Kentucky, up until the Montanas, you know, basically the grasslands, the Great Plains. What came out of that is a, I don't want to say regulatory form of speech, but a standard, say, that everybody could understand. So you can have a guy like this, right? Or you can have a guy like this, or you can have somebody out west, it's a big clip like, like Arizona, West Texas, like, but he will, or she will unhand somebody from Indiana when they turn on and watch CBS, right? That's not changed. That's not changed. And that remains, yeah, that remains the goal of every immigrant that comes here yeah. and wants to work in broadcasting, wants to work in mass media, you know. Uh, that's the that's the that's the the golden ring, right? The brass ring. That's what they're working for. And that came out of after the Civil War, when it when when and, and the rise of the American Empire. There's no exa- there's no coincidence there. Americans needed to understand more than ever before because we were headed west of Cal. We had gotten to California, but now we were going past into the Pacific Ocean. We were going. We had territories. In, in Guam, in the Philippines, people needed to understand each other, you know, uh, and, then, and then mass media comes, you know, with radio, and after that, television. Uh, but there's a reason, there's, an, there's economic reasons, there's geographical realities, there's political and cultural reasons why I speak the way, I hate to use myself as an example, but Cronkite spoke the way he speaks. Just on, on that, Chaz, after the Civil War, you've also got an explosion in the original mass media's the written the written word literacy goes up to a much higher level than it, it was before and then we get into other forms of mass media how does that how does the written word how does plays moving into your stream the the, the greatest 
art form of all time film. Um, how does that all start feeding into the way Americans talk? Because suddenly in mass media, English in itself is portrayed slightly differently to how English has developed. The, the case study, of course, is when everything turned into talking. And you have Rudolf Valentino, who sounds like this all of a sudden because he is from Argentina. You know, that didn't fly. That was, too, that was just too, that was, you know, too exotic, too much of a foreigner, right? And he's, and he's holding, you know, somebody who speaks like this, you know? And, and those, it's just too, it's too cacophonous, you know? So you needed a standard. And what's interesting is that those wonderful British stage actors that come over in the 30s and the 40s, the music hall performers that come over, Charlie Chapman, of course, being one, never lost his, his uh, East London, I think, accent. Uh, he was from East London. Um, yes, he was. But you have others that, of course, he predominantly worked in silent, film, silent films. Um, but you do have people like the like uh, Archibald Leach, right? Do you know who that is? Cary Grant. Cary Grant had to develop a type of mid-Atlantic speech because otherwise if he spoke like this, it was just too forward, right? It's, it's, and I just ate that accent a bit. But again, if you wanted a job in Hollywood, which is, is kind of like the glorification or the, the typical American medium, you know, it's, I think it's jazz, but most people think it's film. You know, I think there's nothing more American than jazz you know, myself. Jazz is a bit harder to work into a conversation about linguistics and accents, though. <laughs> you say that, no, you say that, yes. that jazz is all about cadence and pattern and form and being able to riff within a framework. And when it comes to constructing speech patterns and creating familial sounds and patterns that other people, with which other people can find affinity, yes, it it's all about a symphony of sound. It's about taking the words and patterns that mean something to you and, and re replaying them in a way that somebody else finds familiar. So this is why we go from one territory, one nation, one race to another, and we try to do mirroring. We try to, uh, our accents actually change within a couple of generations. And you saw that in Britain after World War, uh, listen to the Rolling Stones, listen to some, listen to some of their albums from the 70s. It's, it's informed by the black Americans uh, that stayed, you know, the were workers, unfortunately, uh, because of Jim Crow and awful racism. Uh, they did most of the work. You know, they, they built a basis, right? And they were surrounded by British people, by, uh, by and large. And then they would play their music and they would sing their songs as they worked. And that changed everything. That's why we had a British invasion in the 1960s, because the British were able to codify that into the best rock and roll that we've ever had, in my view. You know, there you, there you have an example where an art form is dictated, as you suggested, by oral speech, right? It's, it's, it's informed by, by oral speech. It becomes codified and it becomes redistributed, reprocessed into something else. Robert McSorley wrote a book called The Power of Babel, where he uses as a case study when in, in Gaul, right, when Latin becomes fratin and when fratin becomes French, right? And that's an example of just what you described, where the oral tradition creates a lingua franca, 
because people want to tell each other's stories and understand each other's. And then later, those stories are codified in written language. But there you have, and, and he does, he, it's a wonderful case study of how that occurs. More of Cuban descent, aren't you? Yeah, my parents are, are Cuban. I'm the only North American in my... Uh, in my yeah. <laughs> so it's interesting that it works both ways. And this is important. I think we remember this when we're talking about the, um, the impact of language on conflict, particularly. If you look at Cuban, Cuban Spanish from a historical point of view, the 18th, 19th centuries, there was no need for Anglicization. Not even during the 11 month occupation of Havana in 62, 63, that there was no osmosis of the language. It didn't, English didn't need to seep in. And it didn't until 1959, post revolution period. Actually, no, actually, after the, the Spanish American War, because the Americans actually occupied Cuba. We occupied Cuba from 1898 to 1902, which is when the Republic of Cuba uh, was formed. But it was still a, a pseudo colony of the United States because of the Platt Amendment, which gave them the legal right to intervene in Cuban politics. And indeed, they did a lot. So, so you get a lot of anglicisms. For, for instance, Cubans will say, biste. What is biste? Well, that's a Hispanization of beef steak, biste. Pichado, Pichado's um, Cuban Spanish dictionary, 1865. That's right. Also baseball, the whole yep. sport. You know, Cubans, Cubans won't, in their, in their Spanish, they will Hispanicize home run as honrón. And how is that spelled in Spanish? J-O-N-R-O-N. Um, the J's in, in, in Spanish are, are H's, are uh, uh, aspirated S's. So it's honrón. Uh, a strike for strike, mm. outfield for outfield, you know, a, a pitcher, like you suggested as a pitcher. A, it's, it's just, it's, it, and there you go. There's an example of the, 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 I suppose, the post-colonial Cubans that wanted to have a good job, why then they had this, and they did, they had to speak English. Uh, indeed, my father was an extension of that. My father was an administrator in an American company, Esso. Uh, uh, oh, Esso is British, isn't it? Or was Esso? Yeah. But you've got, you've got that, that point in time where you've got migrants moving more freely backwards yes. and forward from the States post-60s. And yeah. then they become direct carriers of, of what we call a long language contact lexicon. They actually lift and shift chunks of language back and Quite forward right. with them. And, and that's, how, that's how we feel it evolved. The big, the big change, the huge change, and I'm very grateful for it, in American speech, when American speech becomes cool, in my view, is after the Great Migration, which remains the biggest immigratory move in North, and I include Canada, in North American history, where you had erstwhile slaves picking up and leaving with their families and going North, going past the Mason-Dixon line, crossing the Ohio River, getting industrial jobs. Now, were they free? No. They didn't have Jim Crow laws in Indiana, Ohio, uh, Massachusetts, New York, New Jersey, what have you. But you had institutionalized racism. You had keeping them at arm's length. You had black neighborhoods. You know, you, you had people living on the other side of the tracks, as opposed to out and out chattel slavery. You know, you had in the South. And the biggest tragedy in American history remains how Reconstruction went awry 
And after 1888, you had a thing called the Black Codes in most Southern states that legitimized uh, a type of pseudo slavery. You know, where blacks were paid less, who weren't allowed to enter public squares, that sort of thing. You, you all know that. But this is like an open sore in American history. But there is nothing that has, I suggest, nothing has infused American speech as much as, as Africa, the African-American experience. And certainly in music and culture and sports. To, to deny that as an American is to deny your right hand. Let's bring this to a conclusion. Where, where are we now, would you say? Is, I think language in the, the age of instant communication, I think is, is a very interesting thing. And that's going to be a whole other conversation. But where do you think we are now? Are we in a new colonization period? Are, are we going to start seeing our languages starting to come together again? Or by championing where we've come from, do we start pulling apart again? What do you think? I think the lingua franca will remain of necessity, American or Canadian, North American uh, English, certainly because the media outlets are still owned by Anglophonic people. That's changing. You have uh, a very vibrant Latin. Uh, uh, you've got these production companies, Benavision, Versal, Caracol, all these different places are becoming and continuing is to speak in Spanish, but, but worry not Anglophonic people because you have the same thing at the turn of the 20th century where there were more Yiddish newspapers, arguably, than, than dailies in English in New York, or you had Oggi, which was the Italian daily, and you still have it to this day. Uh, that's dwindling, you know, that's dwindling. So uh, to the nativists that are freaking out, you know, uh, some good news, uh, we've been there. And, and because people want to survive and because people have to survive and procreate and have families and have little homes where you can paint your, your wooden panels white, like I've done this entire week, right? You have to be able to communicate in, in a standard way. That doesn't mean, I mean, believe me, I've, I've met some of my high school friends, you know, and Matt, you know, I've created, Matt and I created this character, this Latina that goes to Salisbury, that uh, Salisbury uh, there you go. I went American. Salisbury, you know, Salisbury. And, and she's fascinated because, oh, my God, I went to the cathedral. Oh, my God. Everything was like King Arthur, you know, with, with wonderful arches that go up like hands. And I want to get married with everybody. And, oh, my God, you guys talk so cute. You know, uh, that, that character that we created, I mean, that could happen. You <laughs> have somebody go and live in Salisbury like that, but their children would, would definitely, if they want to go to college and, and, and pass their forms and go to university, they would definitely speak different. So to answer your question, no, I, I don't think, uh, I, I don't think we will, will have enclaves of people just speaking Spanish or German or, or Russian or what have you. No, I, I, uh, it's just, the, the history disproves that and, and disqualifies that. Can I suggest a couple of books? Yeah, so McCrum and Macmillan, The Story of English. It was first published in 1986, but there are two subsequent editions, and there's a wonderful documentary called The Story of English. Richard Bailey, who's no longer with us, who died uh, far too early, Speaking American, uh, published by Oxford University Press in 2012, and for those of us who are theatrically inclined, Edith Skinner, uh, speak with distinction, who, who uh, 
well, I keep using that word codify, uh, mid-Atlantic speech for American actors who wanted to work in, in, in classical theater. And I studied that for four years and that's how I got work. And that's how I was able to, to play um, these wonderful classical plays. And there you have it. That's all I got. Man. Mate, that's been so much fun. Merrin, thank you so much for- Mine, la divina, Merrin. Always, always welcome. Come back and talk to us again, though, Chaz, won't you? Oh, I love it. Well, you know, I'm writing this book on Little Bighorn and Custard. Your, your book, The Little Bighorn. We will have you have you back before that because we'll, I'm, I'm bound to think of something I can drag you back onto a Zoom chat for. But at least to, to the listener, if I ever get a voice message from uh, Chaz in his own voice, I'm most disappointed. Thank you so much, everybody. <laughs> Thank you, History Hack. Thank you, Marilyn. Matt, you're lovely. Thank you. When our guests join us to talk about their work and their new book, the 45 minutes or so they spend with us is just a taster of all their efforts. So to this end, we have launched our very own bookshop on bookshop.org, where you can find our guests' latest and greatest books. You can support them and you can support History Hack too. 10% of every sale via our bookshop supports the podcast and allows us to keep at it and bring you more amazing guests. You can find our bookshop at bookshop.org forward slash shop forward slash hack history or just search on bookshop.org for us under the shops bit. Thank you for your continued support and here's to your next great book. In 2020, when the boss ladies Alex and Alina started History Hack, the world was very strange. And unfortunately, it looks like 2021 is going to be equally strange. We would love it if you're able to support the podcast in any way. It will allow us to keep up the regularity of the pods and also the great guests that we've been able to bring you over the last year. We exist on Patreon as History Hack and also on Podbean, our podcast host's own platform called Patreon. The reward tiers are being updated at the moment, so there's going to be some fantastic options for you to choose from. So if you're able to support us, that would be fantastic. So we thank you very much, and until the next time, bye. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.